Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I thought I'd do something I don't usually do, which is talk about um, a particular article, in this case, one on the collapse of civilization <clears throat> due to the effects of global warming. And I don't mean to pick on this particular article, but it's written by very reputable people and has lots of great quotes in it. And I think it underlines an issue that you'll see a lot when people try to talk about this issue. I've seen this over and over again, this notion that global warming is going to cause a collapse of civilization and so on. And what I'd, I'd like to come to is that while um, certainly global warming is an absolute threat, it's um, unpleasant, it's going to cause all kinds of catastrophes and problems, but human civilization has been a history of dealing with catastrophes and problems. So just because something is horrible and terrible doesn't necessarily mean it's going to lead to the collapse of civilization. And so I'm totally in sync with the science. You know, I'm thinking, you know, the predictions about global warming are, are very clear and, and harrowing. And so that's that's all great. But um, this does not mean civilization is going to be uh, uh, destroyed. And I think what's happening is a lot of people who have a lot of a really great grasp of the science um, and, and are not necessarily have that great a grasp of what they mean when they talk about the collapse of civilization. In fact, it's never quite clear what people really mean when they say that civilization is going to collapse. So I just want to go through some of the main points that they make and then talk about what the actual meaning for civilization and, and human culture means. Um, but first, it's important to note that what the hell do we mean when we say civilization? Because if something's going to collapse, we have to know what it is before it collapsed. And historically speaking, civilization has meant, you know, sort of large groups of people with, uh, you know, technology and literature and art, uh, differentiation of, of, of specialization of human skills, um, the growing availability of education, and of course, exactly what counted civilization has varied throughout history in different places. And, and we have this notion of advance of civilization, which I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. We obviously have lots of new technology. We've made all kinds of improvements in, in many aspects of our lives, but also, you know, the art that we produce is not necessarily better than the art that was produced during, um, you know, the Ming Dynasty or during the Egyptian classical period, right? I mean, so some things change and improve, some things do not. But, um, you know, what is civilization? Generally, what we mean is large groups of people living generally in cities. Again, back to the, you know, Aristotle, man is a political animal, meaning uh, an animal of the city. And, and within that context, opportunities for people to express themselves and, and to grow and, and to produce all kinds of uh, intellectual, technological, and cultural products. You know, sort of a very vague, but I think that gets the gist of what people are driving at when they talk about civilization. So in this particular article, which is the collapse of civilization and global warming, um, <clears throat> they point out in the beginning, they say, look, what we're facing is probably seven of the major tipping points are already being, Antarctic ice sheet is melting too quickly, um, you know, global, uh, uh, ocean acidification, these kinds of problems, that once you go past a certain point, um, you know, there's no going back, right? It, it causes an acceleration. And they, they point out that seven of these were probably either passed already or we are going to pass. Because no matter what we do now, it'll take so long for what we do to be implemented that we're almost certainly uh, losing that race. The analogy that they use in the article is that we have a boat that takes, you know, say 500 yards to turn, but we only have 300 yards to turn it in. And so that's going to lead to sort of all kinds of trouble. Now, as, as they go through this, I'm, I'm not questioning the science, by the way. Again, I'm, I'm completely right there with the science. 
And they say, but what does that mean as we go past this? Like, obviously, we're going to see increased desertification, right? We're going to have more desert, which means less cropland. Obviously, we're going to see um, mass extinction. This is terrible. We do not want mass extinction. We want to have as much uh, biodiversity in the world as possible for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which, which is we like animals, lots of beautiful animals, lots of beautiful planet. Let's keep the animals around as much as possible. Um, so these sorts of issues are real and threatening and challenging. A loss of global forests, which of course uh, provides a carbon sink and produces oxygen, all these sorts of things. Massive changes in weather patterns, dislocation of croplands, um, and societies that rely on, on that sort of farming. And so, you know, wow, this is going to be big. But as the article works through this in the beginning, you then get to the second half and then things change a little bit. We get to a different sort of place where they start talking about what the outcomes of these changes are going to be. So, for instance, um, they say one, one part of the argument is they say the world will probably support only a billion people and perhaps less. Now, that's terrible. If you figure, you know, where we are today, that would be losing... 80% of the world's population, 70%, you know, this would be billions, six, seven billion people dying off. Um, they said the neoliberal economic system is primarily to blame because the world cannot support a high production and high consumption lifestyle. And this is where you start to see the tip in these sorts of articles. So one hand, the science, very good, the threat, very real. But what does this mean? So, ah, what it means is we're going to have to change. Now, this is certainly probably true, or at least we should change. But do those changes have to be awful? Now, this is a curious intellectual problem that you see. It's a sort of type of millenarianism again, which comes up over and over and over again in Western, Western cultures, which is the belief that the world is about to come to an end. Something catastrophic is going to happen. Or catastrophe pornography, right? It's sort of this reveling in the horrors that are about to come. I think it's a sort of intellectual uh, sort of version of horror movies, right? We just love to revel in the terror of, of certain potentials. Um, and, you know, so, you know, the, uh, billions of people dying, neoliberal economic system is to blame, and so that will collapse. Um, we can't, again, we can't support a high production and high consumption lifestyle. These are direct quotes. Um, uh, period, of, so also like the U.S., for instance, they say, is in a period of decline and will probably be headed for rapid collapse. I'm not sure why the U.S. being in a period of decline and headed for rapid collapse has to, to do with global warming. We might be. I mean, the U.S. might be collapsing. That's, that's fine. But is global warming doing that? No, I don't know. I'm not sure what the connection is. But clearly, notice you've shifted in the language in this article from the beginning, which is very science-based and lots of arguments about global warming and you know ice sheets, to, oh, wow, neoliberal economic system is the blame. The world cannot support high production, high consumption lifestyle. These are not scientific claims, by the way. These are sort of cultural claims. U.S. is in a rapid decline. And then one of the scientists who is Australia-based um, said that Australia would need to cut the birth rate in half, uh, have net zero immigration, reduce the work week, go to total renewable energy, reduce household consumption by half, and reduce everybody's income if they were to achieve the sort of sustainable uh, zero-consumption lifestyle necessary to freeze global warming and have a chance of reversing the damage. That's all. Uh, now, notice that list is, is curious in lots of ways. Again, that's direct quotes from the article. Um, that one, we'd have to reduce the birth rate by half. 
you know, this, by the way, this is to say that people are a problem and Australian people in particular are a problem, I guess, if you're in Australia. Notice it's also a weird thing to do to talk about global warming and to draw a circle around Australia. It really doesn't matter with what Australia does. I mean, it might be helpful if they didn't do certain things, if they did do other things, but in a global environment, Australia cutting its birth rate in half is probably not going to make a difference. In fact, Australia's birth rate is certainly not the problem at all. Um, net zero immigration. Now, this is another strange one. Um, so the, while the global population probably matters, why would you, again, zero immigration, why does that affect global warming? Now, the number of people on the planet and how they live does, but you know, if, if a million extra people move to Australia, does this have a dramatic impact on global warming? No. Um, we have to have a reduced work week. People have to work less. And, you know, A, is this a bad thing? Maybe this is just, we should just do that anyway. Let's, you know, uh, reduce household consumption by half. We'll talk about this. Reduce everybody's income. Again, I'm not sure why we have to reduce everybody's income. Again, we'll talk about that. And then finally they say, you know, we might have to go back to a 1950s or 60s lifestyle which, by the way, is not the collapse of civilization. They had, even in the 1950s, they had civilization, at least a little bit of it, I think. Um, and maybe by the 1960s, they even had maybe more of civilization. Who knows? But, and they say with each family only can have one car, and they can only have one TV. I mean, now this is where you really see that the argument has gone off the rails. What the hell does the number of TVs a family have have to do with global warming answer it really doesn't have anything to do with global warming it has everything to do with this sort of again oh we all have to put on hair shirts and we all have to you know move to monasteries essentially by the way this, this if you look at a list of things that they wanted to do in monasteries in the 13th century in germany it, it actually ends up looking a hell of a lot like some of these lists that you get in these oh civilization is going to collapse we all have to live on gruel um, and nothing fun is ever going to happen again. So be afraid, be be terrorized, um, and and that's not the science part of it. And so if you look at this and try to actually reflect on this, a couple of things become clear. First, one of the things you want to try and figure out here is okay, if we're going to be in a resource scarce environment, like so. Remember, in the article, they they said that we cannot have a high consumption, high production lifestyle. Uh, and that seems reasonable in some ways because if you're using up scarce or non-renewable um, resources and you're using a lot of fossil fuels and, and contributing CO2 while you do that, then, yeah, that's a problem. Ah, but what you need to know is what resources are actually scarce. Another way to think of the problem is can we switch to resources that aren't scarce, that are either totally renewable or that are actually have very limited to zero actual impact on the planet. So a couple of examples here, um, like so uh, uh, resources that are really scarce, for instance, fresh water. In many, many places in the world, re the fresh water is a very scarce resource. The nature of that scarcity varies, however. So like right now, India, uh, South Africa, Australia are having water problems. But in some places, it's not so much that there isn't potentially available fresh water. It's that there isn't really the political organization or will or, or investment necessary to capture and utilize the fresh water that exists or to redistribute water <clears throat> that might be used in crazy ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it is true that in many places in the world that, that water scarcity is a real issue. 
Um, however, in other places in the world, water is, you know, an issue. You don't want to waste it, but it's not that scarce. And one way to look at this is if, like, take Seattle, which is the nearest large city to me. Um, while their population has been increasing quite, quite dramatically over the last 30 years, um, their water consumption has been dropping, not just per capita, but total, because the water conservation uh, rules that have been put in place have been saving more and more water. And so actually Seattle is using on, on per, both per capita, but I think also per, per um, total, just the total usage is down. And so this shows that how you use resources really matters. Um, and I'll talk about this as we, as we go forward. I call, you know, if, if you're wasting a lot of resources <clears throat> and you start to conserve them, hey, that, is, that can be very helpful. And so when you think about the scarcity of a resource, it's important to note whether the resource is actually scarce if we're just really wasting it or if um, it factually isn't scarce at all. So, you know, an, an example of an unscarce resource would be in a world of uh, renewable energy. Let's say we've gone mostly or almost entirely to renewable energy. So that would be a big step forward. We're probably going to need to do that. We're on, we're on that way. You know, Germany has achieved their whole days and weeks, I guess, where Germany is pretty much all renewable energy. And, you know, this is so this movement is afoot. I mean, we could go faster. We need to do more. We need to do better. But if we're basically reach a place where we're totally renewable energy, digital goods are essentially unlimited, right? There is no limit on digital goods. Um, so, I mean, they use electricity and, you know, you have to have computers, but basically um, they're not, they don't consume, you know, finite resources. So you, you can have an infinite amount of digital goods. And notice this is already being reflected, by the way, in economies. So a couple of years ago, historically, GDP growth had always been linked to energy consumption. So basically, you're producing goods with energy. And the more goods you produce to grow your economy, the more energy you used. Um, and a couple of years ago, that linkage broke. Where, where countries were able to produce a greater amount of GDP without increasing their net energy consumption uh, per unit of GDP. And what this means is you can actually grow your economy while reducing your energy consumption. By the way, this is total energy consumption, much less that percentage of your uh, GDP growth that's, being, that's coming from um, renewable energy, right? So if you think of both of those where you're reducing your energy unit per GDP and a lot of that energy unit itself is converting to renewable energy, you know, it's possible to have a double good to really achieve sort of growth and, and, and prospering without that. Now, we might say that continual GDP growth is a bad idea. Great, fine, let's have that argument. That's an economic argument that we, you know, that, that is certainly good to have. But there's no necessary reason that you have to have this steady state existence. There's no, like this notion that, oh, we're just going to cap everybody's existence and we have to walk around barefoot with, you know, wool, wool sweaters on all the time. Is, it's, it's not accurate because if you look again at the resource utilization, it is possible to have GDP growth with lower energy consumption and with more of that energy coming from uh, renewables. Now, that may be a terrible idea. Let's, let's talk about that. But that's an economic social argument. This is not an argument about the threat of global warming. And then the population thing, one people talk about is food, 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 right? We've got to feed the people. We're going to lose agricultural land. Agricultural land is scarce. 
Um, and boy, we're doomed, right? So this is where a lot of the billions of people are going to have to die off in starvation um, because, you know, there's nothing we can do about it now. We've passed these tipping points. Now, this may happen, and I hope it doesn't. It would be horrible to think about, but it's important to realize that is agricultural land scarce? Uh, no, no. We have lots and lots and lots of agricultural land. It's just we use it in weird ways. Now, we may keep using it in weird ways, which will cause all kinds of problems, but we don't have to. So, for instance, about 60% of the cropland in the world right now is not used to grow food for humans. So, think about that. That's an extraordinary, it's way less than half. By the way, I'm being generous with 40%. It's, it's less than 40%, but I'm just going to give you 40 because let's be, let's be generous. Let's err on that side. But it is actually less than 40, but let's say 40%. So, the other 60%, which is say way more than half, is used for cattle feed, um, uh, ethanol for cars, which you talk about insanity to use food crop, food agricultural land to put in people's cars. I mean, that's just uh, that's just crazy. But hey, we do it. We love to do that crazy things like that. So um, we're burning ethanol. Um, there's a couple of other major crops that are that are used not to feed humans. Right? It's not we're not using the crop lands to grow human food. So only about forty percent. And then if you look at that forty percent, a whole bunch of that gets wasted. Um, it's either spoilage before or thrown out after. So our food systems are hugely wasteful. Um, generally, the poorer your country, the more likely you are to lose food to wastage. And the richer your country, the more likely you are to just pitch it out because for whatever reason. So, you know, let's just say you're losing 25% there. That can be reduced. You're never going to have a perfect system, by the way. But if you reduce that wastage, so just reduce it by 25%, which we can reduce it a lot more. But again, just be, you know, generous there. So now we're down to 30% of our croplands. Uh, now, of the remaining th that 30%, what are we using it for? We're using it for a lot of crazy things that don't actually produce that many calories, right? If we're really worried about feeding people, what you want is quality calories. And, and you would think, you know, everybody has the classic picture of the field of wheat, right? There's this field of wheat and everybody says, well, that's what you have to do because we've got a hungry world to feed. Well, yeah, no. Um, wheat, I mean, Rice, yes. Rice, very much more calorie-dense per acre. Um, corn, pretty damn calorie-dense per acre. But if you look at some other crops, like potatoes, potatoes are off the chart calorie-dense, um, like four times more calorie-dense than um, wheat. Uh, apples, apple, apple orchards is about three times more calorie-dense than wheat. So we can change, actually, how we do agriculture if you go to regional agricultural models that grow integrated crops, they call it regenerative agriculture is actually one of the names. I think it's a very interesting movement to kind of address these issues and say, grow locally appropriate, really diverse, healthy crops in, in you know, of integrated agricultural systems so that you're producing lots and lots of calories. So, so it, with a farm that had some apples orchard on there, say 20 acres, let's say and you had you know, some apples and you had some potatoes and you had some vegetable crops and maybe you're running chickens in the apple orchard, these sorts of things will be five or six or even more productive calorie-wise. There'll be a much broader, healthier diversity with, with more proteins and just a greater diversity and much better for the environment than the massive monocrop of wheat. But we've been told that, oh, that massive field of wheat is how you grow food for humans. Well, it's one way you could do it. It just isn't that terribly of an efficient way. So right now, we only use about 30% of the, of the available cropland to grow 
food for humans and the way we do it is not really all that efficient. It's just we waste a lot and we do it in a way that's not very sustainable for the planet. So do a billion, five billion people need to starve? I mean, maybe they will. That would be horrible. I hope they don't. But I don't think it's necessary. There's nothing that says it's necessary. We could just switch over to these uh, bioregionally appropriate uh, farming systems that produce vastly more calories for the people. And so when, you, when you're wasting, again, the equivalent of 70 plus percentage of your available cropland, that means like tomorrow, if we lost 50% of our cropland, we could still feed everybody in the world just fine. And that's if we lost all the cropland tomorrow, right, in a day. I mean, like next year, we'd have to go, okay, we have to change the way we plant stuff. Let's try and feed people. Now, notice whether we want to do that, that's a whole different subject. Now, we might decide that, yeah, we're okay with people starving to death, right? Let's have, you know, 2 billion people starve. What's it to us? I like to think we wouldn't say that. But again, that's different from saying global uh, climate change necessitates people starving. Global climate change might lead to us making decisions that cause people to starve. But that's, again, totally different. Um, and I think this is where these people, where, where people get confused about the collapse of "quote unquote" civilization issue. And so, at every, at every level, you have to ask yourself. And again, don't believe me. Look at look at the studies. Look at the research. At every level, is ask yourself: What part of this resource is scarce? Is there an alternative that's available? Is there another way to do this? Are we? Is this? Uh, I like to think of it as the stupid coefficient. If we're doing things really, really stupidly then it's easy, in theory, to adjust for that because you can make huge gains in efficiency or in, or in the planet-friendly uh, structure by um, not doing that or doing it differently. So, for example, in California, which is suffers from water issues, right, because you've got a lot of people and not that much water around, um, but one of the things they do is they use a lot of water for oil drilling and fracking and this kind of thing. So it takes a massive amount of water to do that. And then that water gets contaminated. So they pump it back into the ground and contaminate groundwater with it. So this is, I like to think of this as just a cycle of insanity. We don't really want to be using these carbon resources. So it's bad to pump them in the first place. Um, we shouldn't probably be using drinkable water and agricultural water to, to, to poison with oil. And then once you've done that, it's really, really not a good idea to pump it back into the ground so that you poison other potable, fresh drinking water and agricultural water. This is, a, this is bad in every way. Now, we might continue to be stupid like that, and that is fine. I mean, that's human and that's possible, but we don't have to do that. California could generate, you know, I can't even imagine, just millions and millions and millions of gallons of water just by changing some of these fundamental issues. So again, it's not that these resources are not available sometimes. Sometimes they aren't. But you always want to ask yourself, is this actually a scarce resource? Where does the scarcity come from? Is it a planet limit or is it a human stupidity limit? I mean, maybe what global warming does is it just finally forces us to be less stupid. Uh, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll refuse to be less stupid. But I'd like to think that, you know, civilizations over history have shown an incredible degree to adapt when they have to. And so that's one of the things we may see. Um, so, you know, I guess one another way to think about that is do we have a distributional or stupidity scarcity versus an actual real-world scarcity? Um, and another example of this also is, 
civilizations from history have shown themselves to be incredibly resilient. I mean, oh my goodness, are they resilient. So you think about something like uh, 8th century AD China, you have the Tang Dynasty or Tang Dynasty, Tang Tang. I'm, I'm never not sure how you say that. So let's, we're going to go with Tang Dynasty, probably wrong. Um, and you had the uh, Anlushan Rebellion. And so you had this long-running civil war in China. And historians vary. It's hard to know exactly how many people were killed, but it was massive amount of people killed. You know, somewhere maybe 20 to 30 to 40% of the population, maybe more. Um, but most of them didn't die in, in the fighting, although that was bad enough. But it's the dislocation of the agriculture and the irrigation. It's basically everything. It's, it's just, you know, when you burn the crops and the people die and you get uh, famine from that and the irrigation canals get cut and all these things happen, well, then you get mass die-off. And they certainly experienced that. Plus, you had war going, disruption of trade, everything. This did not defeat the dynasty. This did not end Chinese civilization. I mean, it was horrible. The human suffering was no good. But the, the civilization just went, rolled along. It faced this challenge, and it, it you know, the Chinese civilization didn't end. Uh, hasn't ended yet, right? So these sorts of disruptions, really amazing, massive disruptions, are known to happen historically. Now, other civilizations have been wiped out. Um, there is speculation that the uh, Anger Wat civilization, if you're familiar with those ruins, probably they, they think, I mean, it's not clear exactly, I don't think that's been conclusively shown, but one of the things they think might have happened is that their irrigation system may have become irretrievably uh, silted up when there was a weather pattern shift, and they could not adjust to that, and so um, they experienced a, a mass die-off because their agricultural system had sort of collapsed on them. Uh, similarly, in, there's some groups in the Southwest where they think they, that, they had, that as the Southwest sort of dried and desertified, um, they, it changed more rapidly than they could adapt their civilization. And so people, the population plummeted and people had to redistribute or, or, or die in famines. And so it's not that there isn't historical examples where climate change or other issues have. You know, Rome went from a population of maybe as many as 2 million to about 100 or 80,000, right? So it is possible for these major cultural centers and major centers of civilization to be irredeemably damaged. So it, that is possible. But it is not necessary, and civilization has shown itself to be remarkably adaptable. And so I think to go back to this, why you keep seeing these stories about civilization is going to collapse, it's the end of humans on Earth, uh, the end, you know, global warming is going to cause all this, is, is a mix, one, of fear-mongering. But the problem with fear is, even if everything was true, it still wouldn't be something to fear. Um, remember, it's always important to remember, fear basically keeps you from thinking. Fear is the great mind killer. Uh, and so I think they invoke this fear to go, people, oh, we have to do something about global warming or else something horrible is going to happen. Um, second, this the tradition of, oh, we have to suffer. By the way, this is sort of the, I was trying to think of uh, examples of this, and this is kind of an argument that Elon Musk made with his uh, electric car. And he said, everybody tries to sell electric cars and say, oh, look, I'm suffering for the environment. I'm doing the right thing. I'm driving an electric car. It's all small and very sort of not very nice. And then, and he said, no, the way you do it is you make a really nice electric car, make it expensive and make it an object of desire. And then people desire them and then they, and then they buy them. Um, so all the people who tried to make electric cars go by trying to pitch them as this thing that where you would suffer for the planet and feel good about yourself, 
those sort of tended not to work very well. Whereas Elon Musk comes on, his first car I think was over $100,000 as Roadster back in the day. And then he, he worked down the food chain the other way. So those cars became increasingly less expensive, still plenty expensive, but but the notion is they're they're desirable. They you people want to drive them. I mean, who cares about the planet? And it's a theoretical benefit, I guess. But the notion is, no, no, you've made a, an object that people really like, um, and so they're adapting to electric cars much faster, I think, than otherwise would. Have. Everybody has said that Tesla has sort of driven this switch over to electric vehicles by you know maybe five, maybe a decade has been, you know, moved forward in time. So, you know, these changes can be brought about not with suffering, right? They don't have to be awful. Um, and so when you start looking at the examples, right, why, again, back to the one that cracked me up the most is one TV. Why one TV? Oh, the notion is, well, people aren't living right. We want them to live differently. They have to live differently. What don't I like? That's a bad thing. Sort of, you know, it's bad for you, and so you should stop doing it because I think it's bad. It seems to me that another way to think about it is if people are um, using TVs as a way to not do other things that might consume lots more energy, then maybe TVs are a net good. Maybe we want people to have a lot more TVs. I'm a person who haven't, I haven't had a TV in, I don't know, 40 years. But, you know, the, the argument is not TV is bad. The argument is, well, what's the net energy issue here? And my guess is that TVs aren't really the big issue, right? I'm thinking like jet travel. No, that's probably a bigger issue than TVs. And so this this desire for collapse, this sort of, again, this sort of collapse pornography or, or millenarianism um, is, is, is out there, but it's not necessary. So one way to think about this, and I'll leave you with this as, as, as I think maybe a more hopeful um, approach, is to say what changes that we could make that would be great, right, that would make us happier, that would make the world better. You know, how could we do things, for instance, um, I'm interested in regenerative agriculture and these mixed farms because they do a couple of things. One is they make the world more beautiful. Um, they increase biodiversity. They're really good habitat for wildlife. They do, you know, lots of good things simultaneously. And they tend to bring people together because they tend to be slightly more labor intense, not slightly, but they're more labor intensive than traditional agriculture. And when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm and, you know, we'd stand in a field it'd be me and my brother and my sisters. And, you know, there'd be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres of land and they're just us, right? There's just a couple of kids out there and maybe a couple of farm workers in, in the distance there too. But, you know, there'd be five, maybe 10 people on, you know, 800, 1,000 acres. And it you sort of had this desert feel, right? That's not, is that a human civilization? Maybe of a sort, but when you see a, 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 a integrated farm, you tend to see, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 people in there. You see this sort of sense of community, of a communal project. So I think it tends to be more beautiful, more healthy, and more human. Also, more diversity for the animals brings the animals back. So in, in every way, uh, it's beneficial, plus it produces more damn food to feed the people. So even at that baseline, it's a better approach. But when we start thinking about things like this, to go, oh, what, how, could, how could global warming help us change the world to make it more beautiful, to make it more wonderful, to make it more life-enriching? I think too often <clears throat> these sorts of questions aren't asked, and instead people um, want to preach to fear. Another example I think is hopeful, there's a couple on uh, Sailor, they have a youtube -y thing, um, called La Vagabond, and they, sailed, they were sailing, they've been sailing for a long time, 
Um, but they just announced that they want to create a sailboat and basically a sailing infrastructure so that they're totally carbon zero, if not even productive, right? That they help clean as they go and do all that. And I thought, wow, and they're totally excited about this. And I think they should be because notice if you can come up with a, a system of sailing that's safe and interesting but is planet-friendly, doesn't use carbon, in fact, maybe uh, helps reduce all kinds of other environmental problems. I mean, that would be a big breakthrough, but it's an exciting, interesting, challenging, life-enriching breakthrough. This isn't like an awful, oh my God, you know, we can't have motors. It's an, oh my gosh, look at the amazing things we could do uh, with sailing and, and how beautiful it could be and how uh, independent it could make us. And so it, when you start thinking in those terms, instead of asking, oh, what horrible, awful things do we have to do and suffer through? Rather say, what wonderful, beautiful opportunities will global warming provide for us? So always be careful when you see these civilization is going to collapse, humanity is going to end because of global warming arguments. I mean, maybe it will. I don't know. But I, I don't see a lot of arguments for necessarily why that is. Global warming? Absolutely. Is it going to create problems and challenges? No doubt. Uh, would it be better if we didn't go this route? I'm sure it would be. But we can adapt. We might be able to adapt. I don't know if we will, but we might be able to adapt. But I think it certainly gives us an opportunity to do lots of interesting, beautiful, challenging things. And historically speaking, civilizations had tended to rise to the challenge. So I would be very surprised indeed um, if it all came to a screeching halt because of global warming. So... There you have it, sort of a long meditation on these issues and that, that, that come up. And like I said, it's not this particular article that I'm uh, so upset, not really upset about anyway, but that I find so uh, interesting. It just sort of collated a lot of ideas that you see floating around. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've probably seen these other articles about we're all doomed and civilization is going to end. Um, yeah, I just don't think so. Maybe, but I don't think so. But I just haven't seen a lot of arguments that necessarily say that has to be the case. So I hope this finds you well. Um, and enjoying the summer.